Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Habakkuk, chapter 3, nearing the end of our series through the book of Habakkuk. In Habakkuk, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 this week. Uh, Picking up where we left off last week in that series through the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigayanoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Perhaps the most famous sermon that's ever been preached in America is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was preached by Jonathan Edwards in 1741. And not only is it one of the more famous sermons ever, but it's likely one of the most controversial that you've ever heard. Whether you've read it or not, you've likely heard of it. You've likely heard people talk about it. And depending on the thoughts of whoever told you about this sermon, you probably think it is either the most convicting, incredible message of God's wrath towards sinners that's ever been preached, or maybe The worst possible example of puritanical fire and brimstone preaching without an ounce of grace that's ever been preached. Uh, In reality, it's probably neither of those things. But in that sermon, Edwards uses the word picture, the illustration, that the wicked sinner is like a spider suspended over the pit of hell. And the only thing that's keeping that contemptible spider from falling into hell is the grace of the one who's still holding on to it. We're at a point in Habakkuk where, as you've been reading through the book, it may feel as if you are that spider that's suspended over that pit. So much of the book has been focused on God's justice, God's judgment against both his people and those people outside of Israel, the Babylonians. There have been glimmers of hope and grace throughout, which I think we've picked up on, things we've talked about. But the emphasis, whenever you read Habakkuk, has certainly been more on the wrath than the mercy. Last week, we ended the section that's dealing with the judgment of the Babylonians for their sin, for their idolatry, after he had begun the book by talking about judgment that was coming against the nation of Israel for their sin, for their idolatry. So now, there's no one who isn't implicated here. There's no one who isn't included in this justice and wrath that is to come. No one gets a free pass from God's judgment. And into that context comes Habakkuk 3. A simple and humble prayer from the spider hanging over the chasm. And in the beginning of this prayer, we're going to see three humble responses we should have to God's plans. Three humble responses to God's plans in the first two verses of Habakkuk 3. The first humble response to God's plans is to humbly approach the Lord. Just as Habakkuk does here, we should humbly approach the Lord. Look at verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigayanah. Habakkuk's final response, his ultimate posture when confronted with the plans of God in their fullness is to pray. He's complained to God. He's listened to God's responses. He complained again. He stood up on the watch post. He's written the vision. He's seen the plan that God has for his people, both to judge them and to save them through the conquest and exile of the Babylonians. God has now told all the earth to keep silence before him and his judgment, to no longer question him or his plans, because his plans are written in stone 
And that vision hastens toward its end. And I think this is Habakkuk's answer to those things. This is how Habakkuk keeps that silence that God has asked for. It's not a literal silence that he's required to keep. But he can't go on questioning God forever. Because he's one of the faithful. Those who are righteous by faith and live by faith. Ultimately, he finally has to trust in God's goodness and God's justice. And so Habakkuk prays. When he saw all that was happening around him in chapter 1, all the violence and injustice, he prayed that God would intervene. He said, how long will this last? When he heard God's plan to enact his justice by sending the wicked Babylonians against Judah, he prayed for an answer from God. How can a God like you do this? And now that he has the final picture, now that everything has come into focus for him, he prays again. And this time, as we'll see in a couple weeks, he decides finally and ultimately to trust in the plan of God and to wait for God's coming salvation. But he prayed the whole time. When he was sad, he prayed. When he was upset, he prayed. When he was in doubt, he prayed. When he was angry, he prayed. When nothing seemed to make sense, he prayed. When all he had were the promises of God in the past to hold on to. When it looked like there was no plan or no hope for the future, Habakkuk still prayed. And I couldn't help but think as I was reading this week, as I was studying this week, as I was preparing this week, remembering those former prayers of Habakkuk, reading this new prayer of Habakkuk in chapter 3, the conversation that's been going back and forth between the prophet and God, I couldn't help but notice that Habakkuk prays so much. And I tend to pray so little. Habakkuk was praying in every circumstance, every emotion, every new step, every new revelation. He was speaking to God every step along the way. It was something he had already been doing for a while when the book began. He began the book, Habakkuk 1, saying, how long will I keep crying? He had already been praying. He could have kept questioning until he ran out of breath why God would do the things he is doing. And yet, in this instance, in this day, in this moment, he prays once again. The implication at the end of this book is that Habakkuk isn't done praying either. He's going to pray and he's going to keep praying. He had every opportunity to grow bitter He could have given up on God and all of his plans. He could have decided, this is a God that I don't want to worship. He could have kept with his questions, always having something to answer back whenever God told him what his plans were. He could have, as Job's wife encouraged him to do, he could have cursed God and died. But instead, Habakkuk remained faithful. He kept believing. He kept hoping. And ultimately, in chapter 3, we'll see that he lands at a place of peace, a place of rest, hope, waiting for God to do whatever God is going to do. And I think we have to say that he's able to get to that place of peace because he prayed, because he was talking to God the whole time. I think about friends of mine who have left the faith. At one point, they claimed to be Christians. Perhaps they even said that they were called to ministry. We went through high school together, college together. There were people that people would have pointed to and said, wow, they've got such a bright future in the Lord. Wow, they already have such great faith. 
But if you look at them now, so many of them have no church affiliation. No obvious outward signs of faith. In fact, a lot of them openly question what they used to believe. They may even think that they've just outgrown it. That they've become more enlightened than they used to be. And a lot of them, when you talk to them, they just seem so bitter. So jaded about all of this God stuff. About the the things that they used to say that they believed. And I wonder what would have happened to them if they just would have prayed. If they just would have kept praying. If they had kept showing up every chance they got. If they had kept reading their Bibles. If they had persevered through whatever rut they found themselves in. Because I think Habakkuk becomes for us a model in Christian faithfulness. Even when, perhaps especially when, things don't seem to make sense. So for you today, if you are in the midst of Habakkuk 1, if you're questioning, if you're struggling, if you're looking around and thinking that nothing seems to make any sense, if you're looking at the the chaos and destruction of your life, of your culture, of your friends and family, of your hopes, your dreams, then I think my encouragement to you is to keep going. Keep praying. Keep reading. Keep coming to church each and every time the doors are open. I think that's largely how we get from Habakkuk 1 to Habakkuk 3. He lands in a place of peace because he kept going, because he persevered. So keep going. Pray like Habakkuk did. But this prayer in chapter 3 is the prayer of not just Habakkuk the man, but Habakkuk the prophet. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. It's of the one who speaks not only to God, but speaks for God. But when you read it, this doesn't sound like a man who tends to think a lot of himself. It sounds like the prayer of a man who's speaking to someone he understands to be light years greater than he is. The humility of this prayer is striking. It's the underlying posture behind the entire chapter. Habakkuk has had the defiance glorified out of him. Every indignant thought he had seems to be gone at this moment. All that's left is the humble prophet who approaches the Lord to honor him. To ask that God continue being the God he has shown himself to be. That's what informs and drives everything we read today in these next two weeks in Habakkuk 3. But even though this is a humble prayer, even though it's the prayer of a simple and undeserving man before the Lord of hosts, don't think that Habakkuk is in sackcloth here. Don't think that we get to the end of the book and Habakkuk is in a worse place and more mourning than he was in the beginning. This is a humble prayer, and in some senses it's a solemn prayer. But ultimately, it becomes a prayer of praise. But not just a prayer, a song. Look at that verse, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shagayanah. We know it's a song, not just because of its poetry, its lyrical nature in the original language, but because it tells us so at the end of the prayer. Habakkuk 3 ends by saying, to the choir master, with stringed instruments. So it's not just a prayer, it's a song. There are happy songs and there are sad songs. But this seems to be one of those that's kind of both and kind of neither. It's a Cat Stevens song. That phrase at the beginning, according to Shigayanoth, we don't know exactly what that means. It's not really a a thing that continues on that we're able to point back to and say, obviously, this is what it was. 
But it's not only used in this place in Scripture. It's also used at the beginning of Psalm 7. And whenever you read Psalm 7, there's a lot of similarities between Psalm 7 and Habakkuk 3, both in content and in tone. Similar phrases, similar subjects. But Psalm 7 ends much the same way that Habakkuk 3 ends, with exultant praise. Psalm 7, verse 17 says this. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. He's going to give thanks to the Lord due to his righteousness. He's going to sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. So Habakkuk here, much like in Psalm 7, isn't writing a funeral dirge. That's not his reaction to God's plans, ultimately. He's writing a complicated hymn, a prayer, ultimately a praise. So the humble and righteous response is to pray, to humbly approach the Lord. But shame on us when we think that our approach has to be like coming before the great and powerful Oz, that we are to cower in the corner in the face of his majesty and might. As if we're ants before a boot that's waiting to be squashed. No, that may be by rights how we should have had to approach him. But through the grace given to us in Jesus Christ, now we're able to boldly but humbly approach the throne of grace. We're able to approach him as his children. Because the great high priest has won that access for all those who are united to him. But we should still humbly approach the Lord, according to Habakkuk 3. We should also humbly submit to the Lord's ways. That's the second way we humbly respond to God's plans. We humbly submit to the Lord's ways. Verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Notice again the humility here as Habakkuk begins his actual prayer. He begins by addressing God as Lord, as Yahweh, the God of covenantal and steadfast love. Immediately, we know that Habakkuk is coming before God as if he actually is the God of the universe. He's not posturing. He's not trying to claim his own standing. He's acknowledging who God is with the very first words of his mouth. O Lord. And he does so again Later in verse 2, make no mistake, Habakkuk knows he's talking to God. He wants to continually show that the full weight of his approach before the Almighty is not lost on this prophet. There is not a single moment in this final prayer in which you might be tempted to think that Habakkuk has any further complaint before God, any further grievance that he thinks God has to answer for. No one would be able to read this and think for one second that God is not Habakkuk's Lord. And if you are going to humbly submit to God's plans, you have to do that from the foundation of God actually being your Lord. For God to be your Lord is for him to be the, the master, the sovereign ruler of every single aspect of your life. You don't wake, eat, sleep, work, or pray without the understanding that you are doing so as a subject of the king. That you're doing so under his lordship, his power and might. Habakkuk isn't simply humbly submitting to the Lord as some lip service. As if it's the way he used to think. Yeah, okay, I guess I'll come before your presence and give you the title because I have to. 
He's not counting on a previous confession that he had made in the past, a previous prayer that Habakkuk had prayed. He is now, moment by moment, living by faith in his God and Lord, and therefore being saved as one who is counted righteous. So what we talked about back in chapter 2 with the meaning of that phrase, for the righteous shall live by his faith. He lives by his faith moment by moment, trusting in the God in whom that faith has been placed. But calling God your Lord is not enough if you're just calling him that. Habakkuk also conforms his understanding of what everything is supposed to be to God's reality, to the actual truth. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. He's taken in the content, the truth of who God is and what God has done. And now he's basing all of his future and his current prayer on that reality. Habakkuk here right now in this text is the perfect church member. He's doing exactly what we all wish we would do every week. Certainly what I wish we would do every week. Week after week, I am standing up here in front of you. I am giving you the report of God from his own words. Hopefully, not my words or my interpretation of it, but his words and the true interpretation of it. Not because I have any special access to him, but simply because I am reading you his words and I'm helping you see their meaning. And I do so, yes, as an act of worship for all of us together, but also I do so in the hope that you will conform yourself to this reality, to God's reality, to the truth. When I tell you that this book has the words of God, my hope is that you'll read it. When I tell you that he's the creator, I hope that you'll worship him as God. When I tell you that you're a sinner, I hope that you will repent of your sin and believe in the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf so that you might be saved from those sins. When I tell you that Christ died for you, I hope that you will live for him. When I tell you that our purpose as a church is to glorify God and enjoy him forever by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ, my hope is that you will actually do that. That we will be a people who glorify God and enjoy him forever by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. I hope that when we hear the truth of who God is and what he's done, we conform our lives to that reality, to that content, and we live in light of that truth. Shaping your life after God's realities, that's how you follow through on acknowledging him as God. It's how you follow through on humbly submitting to his ways. By actually doing it, by responding to these truths. I promise I am not up here every week because we had an hour to kill. Because we couldn't think of anything else to do. Like a cruise director who's run out of ideas and we said, I don't know, just throw that guy up and give him, I don't know, 35 minutes or so. Let's see what he's got. I'm up here with the hope that you might hear the words of the Lord and be changed by them. When you hear the report of God, you should conform the pattern of your life after that report. And a central piece of that is to be honest with where you currently are. To be honest with where you already have come to. That's where Habakkuk goes next. He honestly prays to God as a response to the report he's heard. What does he say? O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. 
So he's still acknowledging God as God. Your work, O Lord, do I fear. And he's basing everything that he's doing off of the report of God that he has heard, which included the work of God. And his response to that is, God, I am afraid. It's scary. Habakkuk fears the work of the Lord based on God's own report of his plans. He's scared. And when you read Habakkuk, why wouldn't he be scared? The Babylonians are coming. And with them comes death and destruction, pain and suffering, violence upon violence. The righteous may live by his faith, but he's going to see some stuff. He's going to come out the other side a little more wide-eyed, a little less naive than he went in. And Habakkuk is afraid of what's about to happen. He's in fear of what the plan of God is for him. But notice that he just tells God. He just says it. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't put on a brave face or act like there's nothing going on. As if there's nothing to fear. This is the beginning of his prayer. The first thing he says is, God, I know who you are. I've heard your report. I know what you're going to do, Lord. And I am afraid of what that means for me. What would our lives be like if we were willing to practice this kind of honesty with God? If we began every prayer with, God, I am having a hard time. God, I am angry that they've treated me this way. God, I am heartbroken that this didn't work out. God, I I know I'm not being patient. God, I know I am at the end of my rope. I don't have much left in the tank. And then think about it. What if you also spoke to your fellow church members that way? What if when we ask for prayer requests at the beginning of your small group, What if you practice that same honesty? Well, guys, it's been a hard week. I'm heartbroken. We've been trying to get pregnant. We just can't. It's all I can think about. Well, I'm betrayed. This week, my sister just ghosted our family. She won't talk to anyone. Well, I'm discontented. I feel like I'm at a dead end at work. And I'm struggling to see what the point of any of this is. Why am I even doing this job to begin with? If we had those kind of honest prayers we had those kind of requests with our fellow church member think about the community and prayer that you would receive at that moment think about how encouraging it might be for someone else to hear you and know that they're not alone whenever they feel the same way think about the example you might set that just like habakkuk you're still here you're still going In the midst of all that pain, all that heartache, all of the things that are going on in your life, in the midst of the mess that you are, you're still here. You're going. You're praying. You're hoping that they might be able to help you because they can. But you should also think about the benefit of something as simple as being honest about where you're at. The benefit to you that it is. The benefit of even thoughts and emotions that normally seem like something we would want to avoid, right? Take the the fear that Habakkuk is feeling here, for instance. Fear isn't something we really normally think can be positive, right? Particularly if it's fear of the Lord and his plans. But do you know what Proverbs 9 verse 10 says? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So if that verse is true, and it is then Habakkuk 
by conforming his life to the reality of God and his plans. And therefore, arriving at this place of fear isn't actually moving backwards by that fear that he's experiencing. He's actually moving forward. By this same fear, he's humbly confessing to God. He is arriving at the beginning of wisdom. And what is wisdom if it's not humbly submitting to the Lord's ways in every area of your life? That's how we should respond to God's plans. Even when our reaction is fear, we should follow through that fear to the wisdom it brings and conform our lives to that new insight, humbly submitting to God who is our Lord and Master. That brings us to the third and final humble response to God's plans. Ultimately, we should humbly rest in gospel hope. The faithful respond to God's plan ultimately by humbly resting in gospel hope. Look at the rest of verse 2. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Having begun his prayer, his song in humility, submitting to the Lord's ways, now Habakkuk makes his ask. It's not only that he's submitting to what God is going to do, he has a request in the midst of God's plans. But even though he's requesting something, we can tell by the content here that he's content to rest in the hope that God will keep his promises. His request isn't for God to do anything different. His request isn't for God to do anything new. It's not for God to change his plans. He is at peace with the plans of God in this moment. He's simply asking that God would keep being the God he has revealed himself to be in the midst of those plans. He's asking that God will be God, even in the face of what those plans are. That's why he says, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of all you're going to do. In the midst of the coming judgment, in the interval between your judgment against Judah and your judgment against the Chaldeans, in that time, revive it. In the midst of whatever years you might have for us in your plan, in the midst of my years on this earth, revive it. And the it here, it's a little ambiguous when you read it. It's a pronoun without an immediate reference, but Even the translation, maybe read it as clunky. The clearest it we have, the clearest it we would draw back to, is God's work. In the midst of the years, revive your work. In the midst of the years, make your work known. So, do you catch what Habakkuk is actually asking for? He's wanting God to do his work, to accomplish his plans in the midst of Habakkuk's years. Habakkuk has so caught a vision of God's plan for justice and of God's plan for hope on the other side of that judgment. That where before he was asking, how long is this going to happen? Why don't you end this? Why are you going to do things like this? Why would you treat us this way? Now he's saying, come quickly. Do it now. Do it fast. Before he was asking why, now he's asking when. Habakkuk's praying out of a gospel hope. A a hope that God will save his faithful even through judgment. And so Habakkuk has now come out the other side. He's looking forward to God's plans, even though he fears them, rather than wanting to avoid them. And what he's asking God to do is to revive these works. 
to do a work of revival, to cause that which was alive and is now dead to live again. He knows the plan of God for his people ends in their life and their joy. So he's asking God, even in the moments when it looks like Israel has no hope, when they have no future, when any grand design looks like it is dead in the water, when the people have no life in them, revive your work. Revive your plan. Revive your justice. Keep giving life, God. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. Here he switches merely from the act itself of reviving it to the knowledge, the renown of the act of God's plan. He's asking God to make sure everyone knows that he has a plan to bring his people to life, to deliver justice for them at the same time. God has a plan for the righteous to live by faith. And so Habakkuk says, God, in the midst of this plan, as it's happening, when it seems like it is actually never going to actually happen, make it known. Tell them of your plan. You've got to tell people this plan. Remind them of this plan, even in the midst of all that's happening around them. Let them know in the midst of these years, of my years, God. It's a gospel hope that Habakkuk has. Not only that God will give life to his people, but that they might know about it. That they might have heard about it. Habakkuk is able to continue in his Christian faithfulness with the hope that the message of God's plan to give life to his people is going to be known. That God is the one who will make it known. It says, just as you give life, keep giving knowledge of this life. And ultimately, what Habakkuk is asking is for God to keep giving his grace. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. So Habakkuk's not shying away from the hard edges to this message. He's not forgetting that God's plan involves the conquest of his people by wicked and evil men who will use and abuse those they rule for their own selfish gain. Habakkuk knows what happens when one people conquer another. He knows the devastation, the pain that is coming against the people who he said were already experiencing injustice, already experiencing a similar violence. But he knows, even in the midst of that wrath, remember mercy. That's what he's asking God to do. Because he sees that without wrath, there ultimately can't be any mercy. There can't be any grace. So Habakkuk has to acknowledge that wrath exists and that it's on its way against all men. Judah and Babylon together. But he also knows, he also recognizes that wrath doesn't ultimately win the day. Though God will bring his wrath against man, in wrath there will still be mercy. Habakkuk's reminding himself and praying to God that God will continue to be the God who in wrath remembers mercy. He's asking God to keep giving his grace and mercy to his people. Habakkuk knows God's plans require this. He knows if you're going to do the things you've said you're going to do for your people, you have to give them mercy. So he's asking God to continue being who he has always said he would be. He can rest easy in that gospel hope that ultimately God is the God of mercy and steadfast love. But he asks all the same for God to keep giving his grace, to keep being that God. And he does. He always does. 
He is that God. He has never changed. He will never stop being that God. Not only do we know the story, not only do we know where this is going, we've got the, the whole book right here, but we have other texts like Habakkuk, or like Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, which say this, in a very similar context to Habakkuk's time, basically the same time period, basically talking about the same events, says this, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. That word for mercies in verse 22 is the same root that's used for mercy in Habakkuk 3, verse 2. It's talking about the same mercies. The same steadfast love of the Lord and the mercies that he gives with that love, which are new every morning. That's what Habakkuk was asking for. That's what God has promised to deliver. And those mercies are still the same. They're still new every morning. In wrath, he still remembers mercy. He still revives his work. He still makes it known. He still, through the blood of Jesus Christ, sacrificed for you and me to pay the penalty of our sins, which then gets applied to us through repentance and belief. He still is enacting his plan to give life to his people. And that is the best response we can have. <clears throat> we can humbly approach the Lord, yes, and repent and believe. We can humbly submit to the Lord's ways, yes, and repent and believe. And once you have repented and believed, we can humbly rest in that same gospel hope. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to hear your word with your people, to worship you in that act. Thank you for these mercies which are new every morning. Thank you for not only having plans for us, but telling us what those plans are. Thank you for enacting those plans, giving us your gospel, your hope, your peace, your life. Help us to respond to those plans the way we should. To respond to your work the way we should. Help us to humbly approach you, to pray, to keep going. Help for us to continue through by conforming to your reality, by living like people who actually believe. And God, help for us to rest in the hope of your gospel. Help for us to be a people who are marked by that rest, by that hope, by being gospel people in every aspect of our lives. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.